Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This is Daniel Markin, and today I'm joined by Elliot Clark. Elliot's an author, and he is talking to us today about evangelism and exiles. And so he has a book on that, and we're going to be discussing a little bit of those ideas. But in Canada today, we are exiles, right? Christianity is not necessarily looked highly upon. It's maybe scary to evangelize. We feel like people are just going to antagonize us and that we're just going to be a bother to people. And so we look into evangelism and how do we do this in a world where we are exiles. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This is Daniel Markin, and today I'm joined by Elliot Clark, who is the author of a book that I want to talk about with him called Evangelism as Exiles, talking about this idea. And so maybe before we dive into that, Elliot, good to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the program. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Hey, tell us a little bit about who you are and maybe some of the reasons that like led you to write this book in the first place. Because I think it's a really interesting title. And the, I mean, the, the title grips me, the topic grips me, and I think is more relevant than ever. Yeah. So um, just a little bit about myself. I, I serve with a ministry called Training Leaders International. We provide theological training and resources to indigenous pastors around the world, as well as uh, international pastors in North America. I'm currently based in the U.S., but uh, previously lived in Central Asia for a number of years. And the book and many of the stories in the book are based on on those experiences. But a little bit of the background for the book was uh, really two things. One, um, just my personal study of the book of First Peter. The uh, the book is based really on on the letter of First Peter, and how that that letter in the New Testament is unique for having really a lot of touch points with the topic of evangelism. Um, you know, people might notice reading the New Testament, there aren't, isn't a whole lot of instruction on evangelism in the epistles. Uh, but First Peter has a has a, a good number of, I think, uh, application points related to evangelism. So uh, that caught my attention. But also, Peter writes to his audience and addresses them as exiles, not not literal physical exiles, people who are displaced from their homeland, but he's writing to people who are really social outcasts in their communities. They're mocked and ridiculed for their faith. They're laughed at for their morals. And um, and he's calling them to, you know, how to live out their faith, but also reach out to others when they live in that kind of environment so of marginalization and exile. So um, as someone who formerly lived in a Muslim majority nation, came back to the, live in the U.S., and I just saw Christians really struggling, uh, especially in a post-Christian culture now, thinking about how in the world are we supposed to do evangelism if we don't have maybe some of the the power and influence culturally that we used to have. So I, I just see that the letter of First Peter really speaking into that context it can help us where we are. It helps, I think, it, it helps me uh, when I'm in a Muslim majority nation. So. Absolutely. Well, and you would definitely feel like an exile 
there. Um, and then maybe in some ways, like coming back to North America, that might have been a little bit of culture shock because depending how long you were gone, culture changes really fast. And I feel like in the last three years, culture has changed very quickly, uh, even around Christianity. And, you know, we're based in Canada. And so from what I can tell, it's almost even more hostile, more post-Christian than the United States because you still have many pockets. I mean, there's many pockets in Canada, um, more conservative religious pockets. Um, there's more of them in the United States, but I, I tend to see it more of like a, there's still kind of a religious or Christian fabric that's more like pulled on or grasped onto by many Americans as opposed to Canada, where Canada is unique because we're, we're kind of basing, you know, we take a lot of cues from the United States, but also from England. Mm-hmm. And so I think culturally uh, and Christian-wise, we're closer to more of that of England, where it's very post-Christian, uh, and more proud of our secularism. And so in many ways, many of our listeners, and we actually are exiles. And um, I've always thought of, you know, Peter when he's writing that too, like um, we're exiles of our future home. So every single one of us too, like we're looking to heaven and and, uh, and maybe that's the incorrect uh, understanding of exile in that way. But I've always kind of thought of that touch point. It's like, it doesn't matter where you are. You could live in a really, really Christian pocket, you know, and still we're exiles of our future home uh, of heaven with the Lord. So yeah, I, t- I totally, totally agree. Yeah. So tell me this, um, living... Uh, in you said in Asia, right? And then it sounds like you were in the so in Asia it was a predominantly Muslim, mm-hmm. uh, and then North America. What were some of the contrasts, or maybe like the the differences uh, that you noticed? Firstly, there, like culturally, and and as far as people are receptive to the gospel, but then uh, how is sharing the gospel there? differently. And even this like phrase of sharing the gospel, what does that even mean? Is that a term we should be using? Um, or should we just be saying evangelism? I'd love to hear your kind of your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, you have multiple questions there. So uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> remind me if I miss one. So sure. Um, yeah, I think uh, there, one of the main differences I would say is there, people don't assume that they have cultural power and influence. They've, they've never really had it, uh, at least not in the last uh, 1800 years in that part of the world, uh, Christians that is. And so they just assume that they are exiles and they, they experience persecution. Again, it's, uh, where we were living. It, it wasn't political, physical persecution very much. It was more on the social and familial level. And, and so kind of shame stuff like being shamed. And, absolutely. And what does that look like in that context? Yeah. What would that type of shame look like? Yeah, shame and exclusion, I would say, go hand in hand. And that usually looks like uh, being kicked out of a family, have the potential of being mocked and ridiculed in the classroom. If you're going to acknowledge Christianity in your workplace, uh, you might you might lose your job or you might not have opportunities for getting a raise or um, a promotion. And so, you know, people are very hesitant. In, and, you know, when you're born in, a, in that country, you are identified immediately as a Muslim. Uh, it just goes on your your state issued identification card, and so to to get to a point where you acknowledge openly, I am a Christian, it affects everything because that identification card is goes with you wherever you go when you go to the hospital, when you go off to your mandatory military service or anything. You know, if if you're publicly acknowledging Christ and, and 
calling yourself a Christian. It's just going to play out in every sphere of life. And so evangelism uh, is not one that's approached from a position of power and influence. It's one where you're, you're in weakness. And I think that actually gives you a certain leverage that's positive. And so you, you mentioned earlier the difference between like the UK and the US and Canada, maybe in the middle. I think my books actually had a little more traction in some cases with like a UK audience because they read it and they say, oh yeah, that's where we are. And that some some of the audience in the United States or readers might say, well, we're not there yet, or that's not really happening. But uh, the book came out in 2019. I think they might they might have a different opinion even just in the last few years um, to see how that's happening. So uh, yeah, the way I, I open the book is just to talk about how we typically view evangelism is something that we would invite someone to the church, we would hold an event, we would do some kind of outreach where we draw people in. But the problem is you don't necessarily have that opportunity in a in a situation or cultural location where you don't have that cultural and and that you don't have that credibility. And so how can you do evangelism when people look down on you automatically or they're suspect of the church or they hate the Bible or whatever uh, for its misogyny or bigotry or whatever. So as as that becomes more of a reality in the U.S., I think we're going to have to change our approach. And it's going to look more like, I think, the way Christians throughout history and throughout the world uh, do evangelism today. You asked about sharing the gospel. I take issue with that a little bit. And there's a story in the book about kind of how my eyes opened. That that phrase, right? The sharing the gospel, that phrase. Yeah, yeah. yeah that phrase, sharing the gospel. Um, it's become uh, just the default way we talk about evangelism, at least in the United States. I, I can't speak for Canada specifically, but um, I'm just a little concerned that if we only talk about sharing the gospel, um, you know, sharing is something we do when someone wants what we have. Uh, so what do you do when when the person next to you or your close friend or your family member or whoever doesn't, isn't interested in Christianity? Do you just then back out of the conversation because there's nothing really to share if they don't want it. Um, but when you look at the New Testament, it's clear that uh, just even the Greek words uh, for evangelism and and the verb form of evangelism implies preaching and heralding the gospel. It's, it's making good news known. And you do that, you do that whether people want to hear it or not. So, um, I'm, I simply want to push a little gently, I think, um, against our notion of only sharing the gospel, because it, I think it translates into a very passive approach that if if God gives me opportunities, i.e., if people want what I have to say, then I'll do evangelism. Yeah, I, that's something like, as you're describing that, I'm thinking through all the ways that, you know, in churches I've been through, ministries I've been a part of, uh, a lot of times those evangelism things, it's like, hey, come to this barbecue. You know, there's, you get something. Like you're being, you're re- almost rewarded for going. Hey, come to this event. There's going to be f- candy. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. or prizes. And we, we tend to, it's an interesting dilemma because sometimes you can bring people to, like if you win people to your church with like the really good coffee, but your church has no substance to it, well, you've just won them to a cool coffee club. Right, and so there's a phrase: "What you win them with is what you win them to." And so, in many cases, you know, not always, right? But 
if you're just drawing people with like a fun barbecue and not bringing like the gospel to bear in their lives, then what do you really invite? It's just a glorified barbecue. And so I actually really appreciate what you're saying because it is interesting. Christians, we always actually work from a place of weakness and it's almost like God prefers that. You look through the, the Old Testament and the New. He just constantly chooses people who are disasters and, and people who are weak to display his strength. And so it's, maybe I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Are you surprised that we're heading into, in many places in the world, more of an exiled place? Or does that seem like, actually, that's the way God would almost prefer it? Well, um, I, I do think that's, I, I would say, the norm throughout history and throughout much of the world. Um, in some ways, it seems like the West and certainly in the United States has been a blip on the radar um, over the last couple hundred years. Uh, just in the the environment that is so um, nurturing and friendly to the gospel. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that people haven't suffered for their faith. I think in many ways we've, uh, and this is to me the power of First Peter in some ways, is we read the New Testament and read about suffering, and we think, oh, people being beheaded, people drugged before lions. But First Peter's not written at that time. It's written to people who are just made fun of for what they believe, and people who are who are ostracized because they don't want to take part in drunken orgies. First Peter four. Well, I mean, you can you can see then that Christians have been suffering in this country in a similar way in, in the West for a long time. Um, at least that was my middle school experience, <laughs> um, high school experience, college experience. Um, so I think part of what we need to do is just broaden our understanding of suffering and exile. Um, it's not it's not nearly as severe as we make it out to be sometimes. Um, but then, yes, I. I just think that that, as you said, the Lord delights to use weak vessels, and the message of the cross is powerful when it's carried by a suffering servant. So um, I I I'm not surprised. I, I don't want to you know I don't want to be a someone who hates history and hates that we've had this wonderful period of in many ways flourishing in the West for Christian values. And, you know, Lord willing, I'd love to see that again as far as um, I don't celebrate the changes that are happening in society. That's that's not the case um, that are that are bringing about calling good evil uh, and evil good. I don't I don't delight in that, but I just think that the light shines the brightest in those times. And it's easy for us, I think, when we have the power and influence to become addicted to it. And to think that becomes the means God will use to advance his cause. Um, you know, one, one example of this, I think, in the U.S. is, um, and maybe you might laugh at this as a Canadian, but um, Americans just love to see celebrity Christians, you know, on the football field or who knows what, succeed and then do some do some act that shows they're a Christian. And that's like, the that's our the great hope of evangelism for us is God using us, God using a celebrity. And I think, of course he can, but my understanding of the way God typically works is, is not to use those people, but to use the weak and the lowly and the poor and the, the broken. So tell me this, walk me through a little bit of how you are 
how you structure your book because you said you mentioned you start a little bit about Excel. I'm sure there's like some stories in there. Talk us through what we can expect, kind of like some of the things we might pick up in your book. Sure. So it's a it's a thematic book in that I try to trace basically six themes in the letter of First Peter. Um, the introduction makes the case that when we begin our path in exile, we're really just joining Christ. He was the one who was the first chosen exile. And, and I make that case not because it's I'm trying to be creative, but because I think that's what Peter does in his letter by connecting the experience of believers in the first century with the experience of Christ as himself a chosen stone rejected by men. They too are elect exiles. And interestingly, Peter puts himself in that category. When you get to the end of First Peter, he's writing from Rome and he says, the, the chosen ones from Babylon greet you. So you can tell even then in Rome, Peter views himself as an elect exile, the church there. And so I, I see this as, a, as just a, a fundamental way of understanding ourselves as Christians, um, that we might be shamed by the world but there's incredible glory by being associated with uh, the risen Christ. So that, that's where the first chapter begins, the hope of glory. Um, and then I trace other themes, the theme of holiness, the theme of showing respect for all, proclamation to declaring his praises, and then living uh, or fighting fear with fear is another chapter where it's just interesting to me, it caught my attention as I was studying First Peter, that um, if you were writing to people who were suffering, probably the last thing you would ever think to do is to encourage them with fear. And yet that's what Peter does. He, he'll bring in the topic of fear often, but it's this fear of the Lord and not of your opponents that really enables you to speak the gospel. So what is the fear of the Lord? And how is that different from fear of opponents? Yeah. Because it's one is a good thing, Fear the Lord, we, we understand as a good thing. One, we understand as a bad thing, fear of opponents. So how are those two different? Well, I would say that, um, for one, they're different in the sense that they one is appropriate and one is not. Um, so the object of the fear determines its appropriateness. There is no place for fear, right? Jesus will say, don't fear the one who can destroy body, only fear the one who can destroy your body, soul in hell. And, and you can see... This is connected to evangelism as well. In Paul's thought, 2 Corinthians 5, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others because we know we're all going to stand before God's judgment. So we we want to persuade others. We want to practice evangelism and call people to repentance because uh, we have a genuine fear of one day we know all of us will stand before the Lord and his judgment seat. That fear, of course, I think many people will, will rightly acknowledge we don't want a debilitating fear. We don't want a, an awe that leads to inaction. This is meant to be an inspiring fear. It, I don't think it's just respect. I think it really is fear. But uh, it's helpful to see that in, in Scripture, when someone fears someone, what do they do? They try to please that person. If you have the fear of man, if that's a problem that you're struggling with, where you're always concerned about other people, it doesn't look like, you know, fear as in, I'm afraid everyone's going to attack me. It, it it manifests itself in, you're always trying to please others. You're always trying to do things that make them like you. 
Well, I think that shows then what an appropriate fear of the Lord is. An appropriate fear of the Lord is desiring to please him and to delight our heavenly father. And so that's how I would describe the fear of the Lord. It is a, a fearful reverence and and fear of judgment. It's also just a desire to delight and please. So I think that that inspires us to evangelism. And, and we know the desire to please people is probably one of the main factors, at least I would I would argue. It's one of the main reasons why people don't do evangelism more often is they want to please people. We we might call that fear. You know, fear, many people would say fear is the number one reason why they we don't evangelize more often. But I think if we just even drill down a little deeper, it's shame and embarrassment and it's a desire to please people. How have you in your life worked through some of that fear? Because I, I feel that fear, I, I it's just uncomfortable sharing the gospel with people or, or evangelizing, you know, that instant rejection. You just don't want to be that guy. How have you in your life worked through that? I'd love to learn how you, how you do that. Yeah, I think uh, what you described is exactly, uh, I love how you put it. I don't want to be that guy. I think that's very common that many people have that sense. I would say there are a few things that I, I've tried to work through. I'm certainly not, haven't arrived, but I try to preach to myself. One is that reality of a final judgment is, Lord, just praying, Lord, I, I want to be moved by the reality of eternity and of facing you one day. Um, I think it's also just want to be moved by love. So um, we we ultimately do what we do because of our loves and what we what we have greatest affection for. And so asking the Lord to give us a love for our neighbors, for others, rather than a love for our own comfort or our own, yeah, reputation. So a lot of, to me, I think a lot of, it begins with prayer and acknowledgement that I struggle and I need your help, Lord. The other thing I would say is, um, just the, the experience, if you, you take that first step and you have that first conversation, I rarely have ever heard anybody say, oh, that went horribly as far as it, it's typically people will say that wasn't as bad as I expected. And yeah, we, we tell ourselves so many things about how it's going to go wrongly, how people are going to react negatively. Um, I think we psych ourselves out. When in reality, that rarely happens. Now, it can happen, absolutely. But just going to the point of actually talking with someone about the gospel and having a positive experience can really help you grow in that ability. Hmm. Yeah, it's there's, to some extent, the more you work that muscle, the easier it gets. What role does the Holy Spirit have in evangelism? And how have you experienced that maybe as you've been evangelizing with someone? Sure. Um, well, I think the role of the Holy Spirit first is convicting me. <laughs> I mean, I want, I want the Holy Spirit to convict that person. Uh, but just in what we're talking about, I mean, recently I was, I had honestly, I, this sounds probably embarrassing, but I, I had just done a conference on evangelism. I got on a plane. I just wanted to put my headphones on and check out. I mean, I really was tired. And I looked down and the guy next to me has his phone, he's reading the news and he's reading in Hebrew. <laughs> and uh, so I just started asking him questions about what he was reading, found out he was uh, practicing Orthodox Jew, 
although he didn't look like one, didn't have any of the signs I would maybe expect. But yeah, I just had a wonderful conversation about trying to persuade him that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah from the Old Testament. But um, yeah, I think the Holy Spirit there in that moment was mostly convicting me and early, early moments where I just wanted to, I mean, I wrestled, to be honest, for a little bit. And I, I did what I just told you. I prayed, <laughs> um, Lord, help me. But then the Holy Spirit, obviously, we believe, uh, not only convicts of sin, but but also draws people to Christ. He points to Christ and ultimately regenerates and people believe. So, yeah, the Holy Spirit is is crucial. And so that's why prayer is so important. I've just seen so many instances. I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um, we tend to not only predetermine how we think the conversation is going to go. We, we predetermine who we think is going to believe or respond positively, at least. And I've just seen enough, had enough experiences where the Holy Spirit surprises us with the person, not the person I'm talking to, not the person I'm expecting. The, the least and the last person I would ever imagine is the one who comes to faith. And so, I mean, that's just another encouragement, honestly. Don't listen to yourself. Don't listen to the what you imagine God can do, because so often he saves. And this gets back to our a little bit of what we we're saying earlier, but God chooses the the weak and the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Yeah. So we're coming to the end of our time here, but I want to kind of close with that thought. Tell us, young adults listening in Canada, in exile, um, give us a pep talk, you know. Tell, tell us, can we do this? Can we be successful in evangelism? Yeah, I think so. Uh, first of all, because Christians are doing it all over the world and they've been doing it for all of history and they haven't needed a particular platform to make it happen. They've done it by going about doing good works, being seen by others, living honorable lives, showing kindness and respect to all people. And in the process of that, giving a reason for the hope that they have in them. When people make fun of them, they don't respond back with jokes or uh, they don't put memes on social media. They don't uh, troll people. They show respect to everybody. They treat every relationship and interchange as a possibility for the gospel. And so they are just constantly looking to, to be good, to do good and to speak the good news. So yeah, I would, I would just encourage them. I believe now is not the time for us to fight for our rights. I think now is the time for us to live on mission in the place where God has us. And he will, I believe, use this experience of social and even cultural dislocation to actually further the gospel's advance. So we can, we can take hope in, in him in this time. Amen. Well, Elliot, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure getting to know you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.
In Doubt is a ministry that exists to engage young people with biblical truth and provide answers for many of today's questions of life, faith, and culture. Through audio programs, articles, and blogs, In Doubt reaches out to encourage, strengthen, and disciple young adults. To check out all the resources of In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca in Canada or indoubt.com in the U.S. Or if you're in a position or share a passion for the ministry of young people, you can support the ongoing mission of engaging a new generation with the truth of the Bible. First, you can pray for this ministry. And second, and if you are able, please consider a financial gift by visiting indoubt.ca in Canada or indoubt.com in the U.S. Your gift of any amount is such a blessing and an answer to prayer. Thanks.